Beloved, as we come to hear from God's word, it is good for us to go to him in prayer, to seek his help, and I would say, not simply for understanding of our passage, not to memorize the story, to learn the facts faithfully, but that we go to him for his Holy Spirit to soften our hearts because they are so hardened to his word and his will that he must move mightily in our midst. So let us do so now as we pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word, that you have chosen to show us Christ our Lord high and lifted up. Not only is the example of faith, but the author and perfecter of our faith, that he has accomplished all things for salvation. And Father, we pray now that you would open our minds, yes, to understand your word, but to soften our hearts, that we might receive it with love and practice it in our lives. And Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, as you find the text this morning, you can have it printed in your bulletin, or as you turn to Esther chapter 4, it's always important to keep in mind the context, and by the time that I leave this place, which is a long way away, <clears throat> you'll, uh, you'll get sick of me hearing, or you'll get sick of hearing me say, we've got to understand the context, but it's so very important, especially from a passage that we haven't been preaching through this book. And it's a story that may be familiar to some, may be very unfamiliar to others. But I invite you into the world of Esther. Very strange book in many respects. You never see the word God mentioned, not even one time. You'll remember that this book is one of the latest settings of the Old Testament. Written well after the time even of the return from the exile. It's written to a a semi-Israelite people who were in the Persian Empire after they'd conquered the Babylonians. You know, and really Esther and Mordecai are the two Jews that we meet in the story, the only connection to God's people that we see at all. Beyond that, it's really a Babylonian-turned-Persian epic, full of suspense. Just think of the opening scene from the beginning chapter. There were white cotton curtains violet hangings, marble pillars, gold and silver mosaic pavement. There were drinks from golden vessels, royal wine. It was a feast that lasted for seven days throughout all of the capital at the king's expense. Sounds a bit more like a tale of Hollywood than something we would see in the Old Testament. After all, isn't that just a dry, dingy part of our Bibles? But you see, then we find... A young Jewish girl, a text says that her name is Hadassah. We know her by her Persian name, Esther. The narrative begins depicting this girl's rise to prominence, becoming even the queen of all the known world, the queen of Persia. And the plot quickly turns as we're introduced to the antagonist, Haman, a man who would become the mortal enemy of Mordecai, And by proxy, all of the Jewish people. And turn after turn, the pace rises in a great crescendo right until the point of our passage this morning. And just as the curtain closes on the prior scene, we've watched a decree go out to all the world. 
It took 12 months to go out. That's how far it had to go. What was that decree? Extermination of all the Jews. That sounds a bit too familiar. It sounds too much like the last century that we have seen. And Mordecai, upon receiving this news, was overwhelmed to the point of tearing off his clothes and donning sackcloth and ashes and doing so in a way that could easily get him killed, standing in the gate of the king. And thus we find our passage this morning. I'll read it for us, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 4. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. I recently saw a really well done movie. Don't worry, there's no need for a spoiler alert. But Captain Phillips is a harrowing tale of a man and his crew at sea on a simple yet very impressive cargo freighter. They just happen to be navigating some of the most dangerous waters off of the Horn of Africa, the Somali coast. And it doesn't spoil the movie, but you, you already know the plot, essentially. Phillips and his crew are attacked by pirates. And the captain has to make an important decision, even in the first few minutes of the movie. Who is it going to be? Me or my crew? The lead pirate in the film delivers a particularly haunting line, and you may have seen it in the trailer, so I feel free to share it. He barges into the bridge, and he says, I am the captain. I am the captain now. And the rest of the movie plays out in great suspense, keeping you on the edge of your seat. And it seemed like 15 minutes, even though it was over two hours long. But you know, Columbia Pictures hasn't paid me a large sum of money to drum up support. So what has this got to do with Esther in our passage this morning? 
Well, I think it's connected because we will see that if we seek the will of God, it doesn't always seem like a good idea. It doesn't always seem like good news. And we find Esther in quite the bind. God has situated her in history for a very important role, but one which she had relatively little to do. She didn't choose to be born in this time. She didn't choose to be born of the Jewish people. She didn't, be, she didn't choose to be born after exile in Persia. Nevertheless, she must decide whether her people, the Jews, would cease to exist or if she would risk her own life to save them. Look at verse 11. She says, there is but one law. What is that law? Don't disturb the king or else. On the other hand, don't disturb the king and your beloved Israelite family is systematically purged from history. Talk about a losing scenario. And I'm sure Esther felt a bit like Captain Phillips. He had a Somali pirate with an AK-47 at his head proclaiming that he was the captain. In stark contrast, you can see this question above the bridge, who's in control really? Who's the real captain? Whose command would be followed? The will of God for Esther certainly didn't seem like a good idea. But but in order to really know the will of God, we must also understand that the will of God is a matter of getting at His heart for the people. Understanding what God looks on His people with. Is it love? Is it indifference? Is it hatred? And you know, our, our immediate and external circumstances, as dire as they may be, as in Esther's case or Captain Phillips, they're not always the most important factors at play in our lives. And you all know this. How often I have heard from you and from others, I, I now understand why God didn't let me get that job. Or or as hard as it could be to imagine, I now understand that the pain brought from divorce and separation is leading ultimately to my good and to my blessing. Or it, it, it never made sense until I met someone who needed to share their grief and to find support. You see, we must keep reading in our passage. Listen to Mordecai's response to Esther. Don't think that you'll escape Haman's wrath in that shiny palace, Esther. She says, you mean it gets worse? How how could the pain possibly continue? We ask, how, God? How could you do this to me? The circumstances of my life, don't you know that they're more than I can handle? See, now the reality really begins to settle in for Esther. She recognizes that it's her head on that proverbial coin, and the king is about to flip it. But we continue on. For if you keep silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish, but relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You see, despite the stern warning, we see that God's heart is ultimately to save His people. It's ultimately to bring about deliverance and redemption you know, for a book that gets a bad rap, you know, not having the word God in it, that's a pretty bad thing in the estimation of the Bible. Listen to Mordecai's closing argument. 
What a powerful statement it is. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. As I began to read and study and meditate on our passage, I realized something. Esther's never meant to hear that in a rhetorical fashion. Now, we could easily place that question in the category of rhetorical. But the question, all of its seeming ambiguity, without its clear verbal answer from Esther, it's so pointed that it causes her to do an about-face. Why is that? What will cause us to submit to the Lord? What will cause us to turn and to obey and to trust? Well, let me ask you something. Who is Mordecai? Now, we haven't had the luxury of preaching through this book systematically. You haven't been steeped in the storyline week after week. So I'll tell you, Mordecai is a Jewish man we meet back in the beginning of the story. If you go back to verse 7 of chapter 2, we find a very important piece of information, though it's quickly read over. There we learn that Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, has actually raised her because her father and her mother have died. The text tells us that he raised her as his own daughter. It's as if we can see them walking outside through Susa. And as he, he points out the wonders of Persia, the splendor of this capital, he's also faithful. Like any good Jewish father, he would be catechizing his child. He would be reminding her who she is, that she is of the people of Israel. That her God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would teach her the truth about who God really is. A God who saves his people over and over and over. And we see his affection. You just take a look at any part of the story and you see Mordecai worrying over his daughter. Going to check on her day after day after day after day. You see, Mordecai is really asking his daughter a very different question. He's not saying, who knows? He's looking at his Jewish little girl. He's saying, who knows? It's God. God knows. Don't you know God loves you? Don't you remember the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know, there comes a time when every good captain, this isn't a spoiler alert, but when every good captain must consider the real possibility of going down with the ship. I've never been at the helm of a ship, but I can imagine that it would be pretty difficult as you're casting off. You have a a strong sense that there is no longer a tether to land. Your feet are not firmly placed on soil. You are off at the will of the ocean. You prepare for it though, as much as you can. If you've taken a long trip ever, business, pleasure, doesn't matter, I think we can relate to this. What do we do? Well, you pause. You give your loved one an extra long hug and a kiss and I love you. You prepare yourself. And once underway, if you've ever been on a ship, a cruise maybe, what do you do when you get on board? You go through drills. You prepare for inevitabilities. You center yourself and focus for your time at hand. If you're like me, you're going through security, you double and triple and quadruple and everything else. You check, do I have my passport? Is this really the right airport I'm supposed to be at? Where's my flight? Where am I? You double and triple check. And as you're taxiing out to the runway, if you're like me, you're praying. 
most of that time, Lord, if we can just get wheels up, then I'll be okay. You're, you're pausing. You're centering yourself. But you see, Mordecai's question not only convicts Esther, but it also instructs her as to the solution. He charges her indirectly. He says, Esther, if you want to follow God's will, you must trust in His faithfulness to what He promises. In order to do anything and everything for God, you must root yourself in His promises. So she immediately instructs for a fast to take place. We could ask ourselves, what's the purpose of this fast or any other fast? Why would we stop eating? Why would we deny ourselves food? Why did she have all of the Jewish people to fast? Well, I think part of the answer is in the text. Notice it's not just a fast. It's a fasting on her behalf. Inherently implying that they are to go to the Lord and to beseech His grace and favor upon her. Why? Because she already knew her lot. It had been chosen for her. But she needed strength to bear up under it. As Barry has already prayed today, we know the will of God. But we need His grace and His strength to carry through with that. The writer of Esther, moved by the Holy Spirit, demonstrates, I think, that our queen is really a type of Christ, our king. She points ahead to someone who would have a much more difficult task. We find Jesus wrestling with this same question, whose will would it be? Who is really the captain? He told his disciples to come, pray on my behalf. He beseeched the Father, Lord, is there any other way? But ultimately, there in Gethsemane, Jesus finds the same answer that Esther had found 500 years earlier. Father, not my will, but thy will be done. I told you earlier that the word God is not found anywhere in the book of Esther. But I would argue that his name surely is. Do you remember Exodus chapter 3? It's where we find God calling Moses walking beside the burning bush, and God calls to him. And you notice Moses, like any other human who is frail, who is broken, starts bantering back and forth with the Almighty. He says, okay, God, well, if I go to your people down in Egypt, if I go to save them, let's suppose I submit to your will. What in the world am I going to tell them? I tell them, sure, I've come from the God of your fathers. Well, they're immediately going to ask, God, what's his name? They're going to test me. So God tells Abraham, or tells Moses, Moses, you tell them, I will be what I will be. You see, this is a play on Hebrew words. See, I, beloved, I think Mordecai looks at Esther, his little daughter, and he asks her, much like, much like we ask our children, Esther, who knows you? Who made you? She replies with a response that would make any father well up in tears. The Jewish girl turned Persian queen had not forgotten her roots. She replies in humility, if I perish, I perish. And although it's not abundantly clear, that construction is the same as the divine name. You see, Esther in effect is saying, whatever God wills, I accept. 
It's the same confession that we find on the lips of Jesus. It's not a begrudging abdication of His willpower and authority. It's a humble submission to a loving Father who is faithful. Do you notice how long Esther instructs him to fast? Three days. I don't think that's a coincidence. How long did Jesus have to wait without food and drink and even breath in his lungs? How long did he see fit to stay and to remain under the power of death for three days? Long enough to see his father raise him up in newness of life. Beloved, that was a choice. Willingly taken upon by our Lord and Savior. We know that he had the power of life itself. God had granted him that so that he could have picked up his life at any point. He could have said, well, I've had enough of this death and the grave thing. I'm just, I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm done with this. But beloved, why did he endure? Why did he submit to the will of his father? Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, He endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before Him. Everyone look at me. Do you know what that joy was? Do you know what was in the heart of God? When Christ waited and fasted in the grave, it was for you and it was for me. We are the joy set before our Lord Jesus Christ. We are His people, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. You see, Christ stays the Father's voice. The Old Testament has a perennial question that comes back over and over and over again. Who is this Yahweh? Can He be trusted? Who is this God of Abraham? Is he faithful? We see it with Abraham's wife. Could could God really grant me children in such an old age? He is faithful. We see it at the end of Genesis. Would God really deliver his people from slavery? That's the question. Genesis ends with a question. And we see that God is faithful. Or Jericho. Can God really deliver us from these great and mighty peoples in Canaan? God is faithful. Or King David's sin. Can God really atone for someone so dark as an adulterer and a murderer? God is faithful. Can God really deliver his people from exile? God is faithful. My beloved brothers and sisters, we were told last week that we're on a mission, that the church is more like a battleship. And you know, I think you and I relate to that very well. We relate to being on a mission with God. We relate to being on a ship with one charge. But you know, I think if you've been listening intently, I think if you've heard the illustration of Captain Phillips, if you're like me, even up until this weekend, you probably were relating more to Captain Phillips, the person in charge of his ship who is hijacked. Beloved, I don't think that's really the answer. You see, the Bible tells a very different story. 
If we have charge of our own ship, if we have control of our own lives, the ship is just plummeting towards the bottom of the ocean. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins if it were not for the love of God, the free gift in Jesus Christ of salvation. You see, we're more like the Somali pirate. God is faithful to save His people. Did you hear that? He's faithful to deliver us from any and every sin. But you know, the moment we step board God's battleship, we try to hijack it. We try to take back the control. Thanks God for saving me. Now I've got this. Let me continue on with my life. Do you feel that tension? Because I do. But beloved, let us learn from our brother Christ. Though he was equal with God, though he was God himself, he did not see it as something to hold on to and to grasp, but he chose to lower himself. Why did he do that? Because God did indeed give him a mission. We talked last week about being on a mission. What is that mission? Beloved, we are to be out Trolling the waters for those who are lost, those who are perishing, those who still think they have control of their ship, even though it's plummeting to the depths of their sin. And we are to give them the good news that Christ saves, that He is faithful to hijack our lives, not for bad, for evil, for destruction, for stealing, but for good for blessing, for prospering us, so that we might join Him going out to save others. You see, that's the picture of Esther. Someone who looks out and sees a great decision and chooses to submit to Yahweh, the God who saves. And she says, if I perish, then I perish. But at least... I am God's child. Let's pray.